Welcome to the Indie Matters podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm Elizabeth Thompson, the managing editor of the Nevada Independent. Our editor, John Ralston, is on a much-needed vacation, and will be back in the podcast hosting chair next week, refreshed and ready to inform and entertain you as only he can do. If you've not yet done so, we just want to remind you to be sure to rate us on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Also, be sure to tell your friends, neighbors, and beloved countrymen that the Indie Matters podcast is chock full of interesting information on topics that matter to them and that they should be listening to. Additionally, if you'd like to sponsor one or more indie podcast and would like more details on how that might work, please email editors at thenvindie.com. Today on Indie Matters, indie reporter Daniel Rothberg and I are joined by the general manager of the Southern Nevada Water Authority, John Ensminger, to talk about all things Nevada water, the Colorado River, efforts to keep Lake Mead from crashing, and how the Water Authority views the controversial pipeline project. John, thanks for joining us and welcome to Indie Matters. Thank you very much for having me. Daniel, I know you have a raft of watery questions to ask, haha, so go right ahead. <laughs> Thanks, E, and thanks, John, for being here. We really appreciate it. Um, I know we've talked a couple of times in the last few weeks. There's been a lot of water in the news. And, I mean, just a couple of things. Nevada's top water regulator made a big decision recently on the pipeline project. The authority's uh, sort of three-decade effort to obtain rights to pump groundwater about 250 miles from eastern Nevada to Las Vegas. And we'll definitely get to that in a minute. But first, I want to talk to you about sort of the here and now, and that's the Colorado River, which supplies southern Nevada with about 90% of its water. And I think anyone who's ever been out to Lake Mead in the last few years can see that the reservoir has been dropping. Last week, the Bureau of Reclamation, the federal agency that controls Hoover Dam on the Colorado River and outflows from Lake Mead, said that the, the reservoir could dip into shortage conditions as early as 2020. Since Vegas gets the large majority of its water from the reservoir, how concerned should people be about it? Well, people in Las Vegas should take the the drought and the conditions on the Colorado seriously, but they should also be aware that our community has the tools uh, to be able to weather the storm, so to speak. Uh, we have led the world literally in urban water conservation over the last decade and a half uh, since 2002. Our community has reduced its per capita consumption by 43%, its aggregate depletions off the Colorado River by 26%. Uh, so we are in very good shape to uh, continue to be able to provide the community with a safe and secure water supply. What specifically can the average water consumer in the Valley do to be even better uh, at conservation? What would make the biggest difference? Uh, the, the biggest difference is to take out what we refer to as non-functional or ornamental turf. If you look around the community, uh, be it at a, a business park where your business is located or your front lawn, ask yourself this question. Is the only person that regularly walks on that turf the person that mows it? And if the answer to that question is yes, you should take that out. And we just recently upped our Water Smart Landscape rebate program from $2 a square foot to $3 a square foot to help incentivize the community to make those kinds of savings. So if a shortage is declared under the, the guidelines that sort of govern the Colorado River right now, because the Colorado River is kind of strange and there's no one person who controls it, but there's a sort of set of 
sort of a century of rules, the law of the river. Under those rules right now, Arizona will have to take big cuts, but Nevada will too. Are those cuts going to sort of impact the the water that comes out of the tap? Uh, it won't. And to, to unpack this a little bit, you really have to understand that the term shortage is really a legal definition in federal regulations. So when the Secretary of Interior says he's going to impose a shortage in the lower Colorado River, what that means is Nevada has to reduce its depletions from the Colorado River from a maximum of 300,000 acre feet to a maximum of 287,000 acre feet. Except, as I mentioned previously, our community has been so successful with our conservation efforts that we only depleted 243,000 acre feet last year. So for our community, a declared shortage condition in essence means we have less extra water. It doesn't mean there's an impact on our existing homes and businesses today. And to give listeners sort of a sense, an acre foot is the amount of water that could fill an acre up to one foot. And it's the unit that's traditionally used on the on the river. Right. It's it's probably a little bit of an archaic uh term, archaic metric, uh, really from agricultural usage, but for common understanding here in Southern Nevada, it's about enough water to supply three single family residences for one year. In terms of a shortage, how big of a deal is that sort of from the public sense and, and sort of for the, the, the general trajectory of the Colorado River, which does supply water to about 40 million people in the Southwest? I think it's very much a, a concern for uh, the general public. It's a concern, I would say, really on a national scale. The, the Colorado River is not a very big river by North American continental standards. It's 15 million acre feet a year by comparison. The Columbia is about 220 million acre feet a year. So it's not a really big river, but we supply uh, the needs of about 30 million Americans uh, with the river, uh, numerous uh, Indian tribes, national parks, recreation economies. So it's it's often referred to as the hardest working river in America, and, and it is. <laughs> and any threat to the Colorado River really crosses sectors, urban, agriculture, recreation, uh, and has to be dealt with as a, a national issue. The basin states in the, the Colorado River Basin, the seven states, uh, and Mexico have been working on sort of contingency plans and drought plans for the past few years. Um, how important are those and, and what has Nevada's involvement been in those so far? It's a great question. You referenced earlier the sort of hundred years of, of history. And if you look at the law of the river, it's not like one book you can pick up and read. It's literally from the 1922 compact. Every couple of years, there's another layer of law or regulation on top of that, including to, all the way to last fall with the execution of minute 323. So what the DCP, the drought contingency plan does is add another layer onto that law of the river and requires at specific elevations in Lake Mead that Arizona, California, and Nevada will leave specific quantities of water in the lake in order to protect the really critical reservoir elevations. It also seeks to establish a bank in Lake Powell so that the four upper division states can contribute saved water, conserved water, uh, to the overall effort of stabilizing the system. And then it adds in some flexibility 
uh, for people to, to bank water and take it out when uh, they really need it. Nevada's role uh, in that process, uh, I kind of like to compare us a little bit to, to Switzerland because a lot of times we wind up playing a, a moderating role uh, between some of the other states. Uh, but we obviously have skin in the game as well, and we're looking to, to get sort of the, the essential bargaining points that, that we need passed in that deal as well. Why, how did we turn to how do we turn out to be Switzerland? Because one would think uh, maybe if you're just an average regular resident of the valley that you know w- wouldn't we have more influence because just of our sheer location close to the lake and Vegas is a longstanding community? Why, how, how did that happen politically even to begin with? Well, for starters, Arizona and California have been fighting for decades, maybe not overtly, although for a while, the the compact was signed in 1922. Arizona v. California lasted for something like 1934 to 2006, ultimately resolved by the, the, the U.S. Supreme Court. So there's a history of animosity between our two lower basin neighbors. And Nevada, frankly, isn't a huge threat to the other seven or the other six basin states. We have a legal entitlement to a robust 1.8% of the Colorado River. So in a larger macro sense, nothing we do is really going to upset the apple cart. So it, and that gets to something that I think is on everybody's mind all the time in, in the, the most arid state, which is what, what's in store for the future. And since I mean, most people have ruled out the idea of renegotiating the Colorado River Compact so Nevada could potentially get more water from the river. I don't think anybody's going to get more water from the river at this point. That doesn't seem like the direction things are going. So where you see Nevada's future water resources coming from, if there's ever a threat that Las Vegas might have to take serious cuts from the Colorado River? Well, I would say first, second, and third options are additional conservation. Our community really does control its own destiny in terms of the demand management side of the equation. We have so much uh, non-functional ornamental turf in this valley that could be removed without any material effect on the quality of life of the people of our community, that if we can take care of the demand management side, that's going to take care of our community for decades and decades to to come. But I do think there are other options. I know we're going to talk about the, the groundwater project here in a little bit. But I also think we've made strides on establishing the legal mechanisms to do uh, exchanges if we wanted to take an equity interest in a coastal desalination facilities. And I think there are opportunities for efficiency programs, uh, both Arizona, California, and the country of Mexico. And I can give examples of some of the pilot work we've done with the country of Mexico to realize uh, savings in those jurisdictions and in return have them leave a, a portion of their river water in Lake Mead for us to to access. So I, I actually think we have a, a multitude of, of options, you know, 20 plus years out to, to look to bring online. John, can you quantify for the listeners getting back to this uh, issue of ornamental turf? If, if valley wide here in Southern Nevada, we were to get rid of all non-essential or ornamental turf grass, just things that are just, they're there for aesthetic purposes, period. If we were to do that within, let's just say, a five-year 
period. What, how much of a difference would that really make in, in this whole grand scheme of worrying about acre feed and what we're drawing and returning to the lake? Okay, I need to go backwards first to sort of establish the context, but I mentioned before what we've done since 2002. Since 2002, uh, we have removed more than 200 million square feet of non-functional ornamental turf from this valley. And as a result of that, in the same time period, we added 650,000 new residents. We drove down our net consumption from the Colorado River by 26%. So we estimate that that's about halfway, that 200 million square feet of turf is about half of what's realistic to get out of uh, the community right now. So if we do that again, and I'm not the person who's in charge of growth or no growth, I'm just supposed to make sure the water's here. But if the community wants another 650,000 people to move here, you could literally do that over the next 20 years and be using less water than we are today. That's that's an amazing statistic. At what point does conservation do you, do you sort of hit a wall with conservation? I, I think it's probably that point w- that I'm talking about. Probably you know since we've done as much as we've done in the last 15 years, that over the next say 15 to 25 years, you're you're going to harden your demands. And at that juncture, whatever your population is at that point, if you grow beyond that, you're going to need to uh, look at new resource options. But I would also caveat that with the fact that that's driven largely by what the hydrologic conditions on the Colorado River are going to look like. If we have normal conditions on the Colorado River, our current resource plan shows that we don't need a single drop of new resources through 2068. But if we have some of the dire conditions you alluded to and you start seeing larger shortages on a more regular basis, then those shortage conditions are what will drive the need for additional resources. I mean, how likely do you, do you think it is, given some of the studies that have come out and some of the projections for the climate into the future, that, it, that we do have sort of normal or uh, typical hydrology on the Colorado River? Well, that really begs the question as to what you consider normal, uh, because we know from uh, the paleo hydrology, the hydrology reconstructed from tree ring records, that the 20th century was one of the three wettest centuries in the last 1,200 years on the Colorado River. So the, the 16th and 17th centuries were really, really dry centuries. So what you have to look at to say, what's a worst case scenario? How are you going to bracket this? I think you have to take one of those dry centuries within the historic record and then overlay the possibility of uh, anthropogenic climate change on top of that and try to derive sort of how bad could bad be. And, you know, in my opinion, you know, for our resource plan, we've already taken the step of saying federal law requires us to take 20,000 acre feet as our maximum shortage. Our last plan, we said, what if that doubles and planned Mm -hmm. to a doubling of the shortage amount? So as we get more data and you continue to see what river conditions look like, we'll we'll continue to plan for uh, what could be the worst case scenario. So this whole time we've sort of been alluding to future resources. And I think the one that people know probably the best from SNWA is something that was in the news this week, which is the pipeline. Just to give a little bit of background, uh, in 1989, the Water Authority began filing for groundwater rights 
with the state to pump many billions of gallons of groundwater potentially from eastern Nevada to Las Vegas. Um, at the time, the Water Authority was looking at a growing population and sort of the possibility of not having enough water going into the, into the next century. The pipeline hasn't been necessary yet, but it continues to be a controversial project, especially in eastern Nevada. It's been mired in litigation for decades. Earlier this month, opponents declared a victory when the state engineer, Nevada's top water regulator, denied water rights, some of the water rights for the pipeline project. But when I talk to you for my story about that, you argue that there are ways in which the decision could actually be good for the water authority. How so? Well, for, for anybody that wants to take the time to read a really, really long uh, ruling on water rights. It was 111 uh, pages. <laughs> 111 so, yeah. pages. Which Daniel uh, did read. Right. And it, it was dry. Bad, I, I will make that joke. Bad pun to call it dry. Uh, <laughs> but if you read the entire ruling, you will see that the state engineer deemed all of the science that had been presented to him to determine that the water is there and available for appropriation, that the project could be developed in an environmentally sound manner, that SNWA's uh, monitoring management and mitigation program was sufficient and acceptable. The only hurdle the, the state engineer really couldn't get by was a, a remand issue imposed by the district judge saying that 2,000 or 2,500 years from now, there had to be def definitive proof of 100% evapotranspiration capture, uh, a provision that exists nowhere in Nevada statute, regulation, or case law. Uh, and the state engineer, because he was following the law and following what the district court judge told him he had to do, complied with that and promptly issued a press release saying he was going to appeal his own ruling. How, how unusual is that? Unprecedented. So, so basically what you're sort of saying is that his hands were tied by a court order. And, I, and that's sort of why he denied the permits. He, he was, his hands were absolutely tied by a, a court order to impose a provision that exists nowhere in Nevada law. He has previously determined that the water is there and available for appropriation, and he did so again. So in a way, I, I view this as another step in the process. We, this project was always going to the Nevada Supreme Court. Whether we were going there as the appellee or the appellant probably isn't that big of a distinction. So w when do you think that the Water Authority will actually need a groundwater project like this? Well, again, and I don't want to dance on the head of a pin or quibble with you, but need, we don't need it today. We don't need it tomorrow. We probably don't need it for the next 20 years. But responsible water planning requires a multi-decadal outlook. We take a 50-year resource plan to our board every single year so that we always have a 50-year outlook of what the water resource portfolio of this community looks like. So we don't need this water to start coming into the valley 20, 25 years from now. But what we need to have done to do our jobs is identify uh, valid options for our community out in the future. And that's why I con consistently tell people, as much as you may dislike the groundwater project, it's one of a number of options that we look at as future resources so that 
when we hand the baton to the next generation, they, they won't be starting from scratch on figuring out w- what to do in terms of taking care of our community. Isn't part of the – so I love all this wonky discussion about lawsuits and timing and who controls what and 50-year plans. That, that's, that's important, interesting information. But the average water consumer, I think, just kind of wants to know – you know, when is it time to panic, if ever? Do I have to worry about my house value, for example, at some point in the future? Should I worry about owning real estate in Las Vegas because are we going to have a water shortage at some point that's going to drive the value down and then all of a sudden we see a dampening on the, the population? This is what kind of the regular folks out there worry about. And you don't sound worried when you talk about this. So do we take from that that no one should, no one here should be worried? No one here should be worried. My professional opinion is that Las Vegas is the most water secure city in the desert southwest of the United States. And I'll give you three reasons for that. First, we have secured our means of delivery through the construction of the third intake and the low lake level pumping station, which will be online in the spring of 2020. We will be able to access water from Lake Mead when the federal government can't release any water downstream to Arizona, California, and the country of Mexico. Second, as I mentioned, our conservation achievements are unparalleled literally around the world. And we have the ability to replicate those achievements going into the future. Third, we've spent the last 20 years preparing for this eventuality, and we've banked water all over the region. We've recharged aquifers in Arizona. We banked water in California reservoirs. We've incentivized Mexican farmers to laser level fields and and line canals. And as a result of that, we have approximately eight years of our current demands banked around the region to help us buffer against any of these shortage conditions. So we are better prepared literally than, than anyone else. And I know it's wonky perhaps, but the bottom line message to our community is we're safe and you don't need to sell your house. I know the Southern Nevada Water Authority, in sort of discussing the pipeline, has always made the case that it sees itself as part of the larger state and important not just in the community but in the in the sort of the whole state. Are you concerned about some of the the blowback that's – I think the criticism that's already been made for many years from people in eastern Nevada and the north that Las Vegas is taking the water – I mean, are you concerned about sort of that, what people, I guess, call the north-south divide and how the water project plays into that? I, I am, and I wish that the the water business was an all-the-people-happy-all-the-time business, but it's not. Mm-hmm. And the, the simple fact of the matter is, under the Nevada Constitution, the all the water in the state of Nevada belongs to all the people in the state of Nevada. Clark County as a whole uses less than 5% of all the water available within the state of Nevada. And if the day comes when 70% of the state's population needs to take our water usage from 5% to 6%, I think that's a valid public policy discussion to be had. Do you think we've actually had that discussion in a serious way? I think a small group of people that are relatively antagonistic to each other have had that discussion for for a long time. I don't think it's been a a broader public dialogue. When we talk about water consumption, isn't 
So here in Clark County, we're mostly talking about average household usage, right? But in the rurals, a lot of the time, it's the farmers that are concerned. And now we're not really just talking about per capita use. We're talking about being able to irrigate uh, agricultural enterprises. For example, does the law that's on the books right now make an allowance for that? What, when, if we ever do start fighting uh, seriously over the groundwater in Nevada, how much political power do the agricultural uh, guys in the rurals have versus what we would expect Clark County to have based on the fact that we, we've got this you know, ginormous population here? Is that even, a, va- is that even a valid concern or question? Because this, this, this battle gets couched, as Daniel just said, in terms of north versus south. But I also hear it get couched in terms of, like, you know, the rural, the rural farmer guys versus, you know, the urban interests. That's really what I'm kind of driving at here. And, and I guess what I would love to see is the lessons we've learned on the Colorado River sharing one river system between seven states and two countries and agricultural interests and environmental interests and urban interests. We've achieved a world model for how to share water resources. And I mean that literally because some of the work we've done on transboundary issues with the country of Mexico, I've seen those translated into Russian to help solve disputes uh, within some of the former Soviet republics. And I think within Nevada, we have to evolve to a place where we can have that uh, conversation to be able to say this distinction between ag and urban is a false distinction. My constituents eat hamburgers, they take showers, they either really want to take a rafting trip down the Grand Canyon or at least like the idea of being able to at some point. So there's not an urban economy, uh, an agricultural economy, and uh, a a recreation economy that exists in these silos. Our residents buy the agricultural products. So we need to somehow come together as a state and recognize that – What's good for Las Vegas isn't bad for everyone else. Well, I mean, I think the concern from from maybe ag users and ranchers in uh, eastern Nevada is that the pipeline will look something like some of the sort of 19th century projects that you saw across the West. And I think it's often compared to sort of Owens Valley and the project that the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power pursued in the early 1900s to sort of suck water out of the valley. Um, And I think it it started in maybe the first decade of the 1900s, and by 1924, Owens Lake was dry. Um, And and the valley sort of continues to be dried out because an urban user took all that water. Do you agree with that comparison, or is the pipeline sort of a – do you see it as a different project, type of project? I don't agree with the comparison, and I'll give you a couple of reasons why. First, uh, the Endangered Species Act didn't exist when William Mulholland you know, had his project with uh, Owens Valley. Uh, the National Environmental Policy Act didn't exist uh, at that point. And Nevada water law is very different from California water law. Nevada water law only allows you to appropriate the water that's available within the perennial yield, which essentially means whatever water is naturally replenished to the aquifer each year, that's the limit to the amount of water you can take out. When Los Angeles developed the Owens Valley, the first thing they did was buy up all of the ranches and then export the surface water uh, through the LA aqueduct to LA 
And when that wasn't enough, they drilled a bunch of wells and pumped the groundwater to also export that. The way we have envisioned this project, the way this project has been permitted, is to only extract water from within the perennial yield, but we've also acquired uh, a large amount of surface water that will be dedicated to keeping the surface green, to keeping the environment vibrant, and ensuring that nothing like Owens Valley could be replicated uh, within the boundaries of the state of Nevada. So the groundwater basins would be kept at a at an equilibrium based on the sort of formula, formula you discussed known as perennial yield. Yes, they would only be developed on a sustainable basis. What Mother Nature provides through natural recharge, that's the amount of water that could be used by humans. Do you, do you think some of the history in terms of water in the West, especially the example I just gave in California, has affected the, the way that the pipeline is perceived? Certainly. I think if you look through, you know, 19th century uh, and 20th century uh, water politics, uh, water development projects, it was often, you know, winners and losers, zero-sum game. Uh, and I don't think that's the way things are operating. My experience, everywhere else except on the groundwater project, every other project I've worked on in my almost 20-year career working in water is about compromise. It's about working together and forging partnerships and finding new ways to do things. But in Nevada, we do seem to still sort of sort of be stuck in this, you know, waters for or whiskeys for drinking and waters for fighting, right? That's a right. We need, we need to catch up. Do you do you see a potential compromise in in that could sort of end all this fight legal wrangling that's gone on for the last three decades? I hope so. I, I can't sit here and tell you what that proposed compromise would be, but I don't know. I'm an eternal optimist. I believe that reasonable people of goodwill uh, can sit down and try to find ways to make sure that the majority, the vast majority of the state's population has water security, but that the, the places uh, in eastern Nevada that people love are protected and that the historic agricultural uh, lifestyle that exists in eastern Nevada can continue for as long as those people would like to live that way. I'm curious about another thing, taking the conversation back to southern Nevada, but also I think it relates to the general water portfolio balancing act that the Water Authority has to do, which is the idea of sort of Las Vegas is growing outside of the valley and and how you manage the water resources when they're pumped outside of the valley. There is the possibility that the Ivanpah Airport is going to come back soon. The Clark County Lands Bill looks at the idea of expanding down the, the I-15. And North Las Vegas recently broke ground on a pipeline to carry Colorado River water, potentially carry Colorado River water at some point to Apex. So how is the Water Authority addressing those concerns as water moves farther from the, the source. Okay, and uh, before I answer that question, Elizabeth's going to be upsetting because I'm going to wonk out a little bit. But <laughs> No, no, we love the wonkiness. We just occasionally we want to throw in a non-wonk <laughs> question to just break it up a little. <laughs> okay, so I, I have to very quickly explain return flow credits. So mm. when we divert water out of Lake Mead, 60% of it is used uh, outdoors and very is gone, right? 40% is indoors. We put that 40% back into the lake and can take that out until it's fully depleted. So within the Las Vegas Valley, 
The only way we deplete water from the Colorado River system is through outdoor irrigation and evaporative cooling. So as we build pipelines, and there are proposals for pipelines, you know, again, down towards Gene and Ivanpah, maybe into the El Dorado Valley as the city of Henderson expands that way. And as you mentioned, uh, city of North Las Vegas into Apex, the, the Water Authority's board of directors has already adopted an out-of-valley use policy that is going to require the water usage outside the valley to be tightly controlled and to be able to replicate the return flow credit methodology. And you do that either by building sewage lines back the other way so that the, the effluent from those new uses is also treated and returned to Lake Mead. You can do aquifer uh, recharge programs uh, with that water. You could do direct industrial uses uh, with that. But one way or another, those uses uh, have to mathematically be the same as they would be inside the valley. Otherwise, those types of out-of-valley out uses uh, could impose serious uh, constraints on our future resources. So how is SNWA involved in the process for sort of permitting or th those proposals and ensuring that they meet that standard? Well, when you say, how is SNWA doing it? First, you have to look at who is the membership of SNWA, right? Our members are the city of North Las Vegas, the city of Las Vegas, Clark County, the, the Las Vegas Valley Water District, Boulder City. So the, the jurisdictions that are proposing uh, these sorts of expansions outside the valley are actually the membership of the Southern Nevada Water Authority. So when I say the Water Authority has agreed to an out-of-valley use policy uh, to, in order to ensure that water is used efficiently and in the same manner it is used within the valley. I'm actually saying all these local jurisdictions that are proposing these projects are the ones agreeing to how that water is going to be managed. Does the Water Authority have any involvement in, in how that water is ultimately used? Because for certain industrial, certain industrial activities consume a lot more water than other ones. Um, and could potentially strain a portfolio or a water sort of, yeah, well, I guess a water supply portfolio. So is the Water Authority or the member agencies involved in that as well? We certainly have discussions. I would say it's not completely formalized. The, the jurisdictions that would have the ability to make a decision to say that specific water use is inappropriate for our community based upon available supplies would be the the retail members. So the Las Vegas Valley Water District, City of Henderson, City of North Las Vegas, primarily uh, within the valley that they would have to take a look at. Basically, it's not a cost-benefit analysis. It's a, it's a water-to-jobs sort of analysis to say, is that dedication of that amount of water justified by the economic impact from the project? One thing that I've been writing about, not to jump all over, I feel like we're jumping to all these different topics, but there's a lot of water stuff going on all the time. But outside the valley, past Apex, the, the state engineer has been looking at just sort of how much groundwater is there. And it's part of, I think, a larger effort among Nevada regulators to sort of assess the state of groundwater in uh, Nevada, because many groundwater basins are overappropriated, where there are more water rights allocated to water users than there is actually water that can be taken out in a sustainable ma manner. And this, I, I, I have to apologize to listen to now, because this is 
also incredibly wonky, but super important <laughs> because, you know, many towns and businesses outside of Las Vegas and Reno get their water from groundwater. And I think what happens with overappropriation is it leads to overpumping and then the water table falls and then it costs more to drill a well and the, the water quality is worse and it's sort of a nightmare. As we discussed, SNWA has rights or pending applications to rights across the state. So I'm curious, has this issue of overpumping affected any of those water rights? Well, certainly the, the state engineer within Clark County is taking a look at a, a five uh, basin area, uh, really from Garnet Valley, which is where Apex is, up through Coyote Spring and down through uh, where the Muddy River flows, so down through Overton, Logandale, that area, which the five basin area is generically referred to as the super basin. And the, the state engineer has said he thinks there are more uh, water rights that have been issued than there is a sustainable water supply uh, to support that. So I think he's at the very beginning of the process to walk through uh, how to bring those five basins into balance. But I think the good news for Clark County compared to, say, Pahrump or Diamond Valley is the vast majority of those water rights aren't being pumped. So there's no one actually relying upon uh, that water today. Mm -hmm. It's still going to be a, a long process and a long complicated process to figure out how to reduce the number of permitted water rights. But at least we're not talking about cutting back actual existing uses like they are in other parts of the state. And complicated water things often or almost always end up in court. And I know I, I wrote a couple of weeks ago about Coyote Springs suing the state engineer. And I don't know if SNWA is part of that lawsuit or might be brought in in the future. But I'm curious just generally, because there is so much litigation going on right now around water in Nevada. You're a, former, or you're, you're a lawyer by training. What does it mean to have all these judges and courts weighing in on Nevada water law? I, I do, for the record, prefer the term recovering attorney. <laughs> but uh, I, I think what it means is we need some changes to Nevada water law. Now, I just sent a, a shiver up, you know, several million spines throughout the state. But Nevada water law. 63 lawmakers. <laughs> but Nevada water law is based upon, you know, 1880s mining law. Prior appropriation, first in time, first in right, lose it or use it, uh, uh, use it or lose it, I should say. And some of these things just need to be modernized. I'm not saying there's a wholesale revision to, to the law that's needed, uh, but Governor Sandoval impaneled a, a, a drought forum through 2015. Uh, they met throughout the state for most of that year. There was a drought summit where every water user within the state I can think of uh, got to give testimony and ultimately a recommendations report uh, was forwarded to him. And not a lot of action has been taken uh, on those recommendations. So at, at some point, I'm not saying it has to happen this legislative session or all at once, but incrementally over time, uh, Nevada's water code needs to be modernized to, to clarify some of the ambiguities that have led to so much litigation around water in the state. John, whose responsibility is it primarily to make sure that the recommendations that came uh, back from this uh, you know, study do what you're 
saying that we modernize our system. Does it fall on the governor? Does it fall on the legislature? Is SNWA at some point going to make a push to lobby uh, the legislature to, to kind of get this ball rolling? How, how, how does that begin and who needs to lead here? Well, I think at the end of the day, that's probably really is the problem that no one has taken ownership of that. Uh, I, I think for relatively obvious reasons, if SNWA steps up and say, this is what we think the solution is, we're, we're fairly quickly going to have some people say, yeah, there'll, be some, not, there'll be some other the, lobbyists uh, <laughs> that's not the sprinting solution. into the room. Uh, right. So, <laughs> so I think we've honestly, we, we've, you know, laid back uh, a little bit, uh, but we're certainly ready, willing, and able to be part of a solution. But I think the real answer to your question is everyone, right? It's going to take everybody uh, to, to solve this problem. We live in the driest state in the nation, as Daniel's mentioned a couple of times. Nothing is more important than water. And it's going to take our entire state to figure out the solutions. I don't know if you want to go down this road, but, but what are some potential <laughs> Probably not with that lead like in. to see? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Daniel. I, I missed that. No problem. Um, what what are some potential changes that you think are necessary to to sort of modernize Nevada water law? To the body of law, you're saying okay. okay. Well, let let's start with a couple. Uh, I think should be easy ones, but nothing in water law is, is easy. But I <laughs> but I mentioned use it or lose it, right? So under most Western water law in all 17 Western states, but certainly the rule of law in Nevada, the rule has always been if you don't apply 100% of your water right to beneficial use, then whatever you don't use can be forfeited or abandoned. That made a lot of sense when the guy downstream wanted to start his own mining claim or, or farm and you weren't using your water. It doesn't make as much sense when you're trying to incentivize people to use less water during a drought, knowing that the clock is then ticking on them forfeiting their water. So I think relatively low-hanging fruit that people should be able to agree that rather than a strict use it or lose it, that we can figure out a way to allow people to conserve water and not forfeit their property rights. Uh, I think another one, measure the water. One of the recommendations to the governor was all water use in Nevada should be metered, and that has not been implemented. I don't think, I'm not sure, I think I had a vague idea that that was true, but I don't know that I've ever heard anyone just say that out loud before, that that would be a great place to start, is let, let's merely measure what we're using across the board, right? Absolutely. And so it they get harder from there, uh, but I should probably stop uh, with, with what I think are, are two if we can't agree to that, what else could we possibly agree to? <laughs> I have one last question, and you meant you mentioned the phrase uh, that's often attributed to Mark Twain, former Virginia City resident, um, that whiskey's for drinking and water's for fighting over. And I'm curious, do you agree that ultimately water is for fighting over? I think it better not be, or we're all going to be in a lot of trouble. We can sit here and fight uh, while temperatures continue to rise and water resources across the western United States uh, continue to diminish, or we can be adults and we can come to the table and we can try to figure out real-world solutions uh, to really uh, a problem that there's not a more important problem than water. There might be something equal, but there's not anything more important. And if we can't set some of these divisions aside and figure out what to do, it just better not be for fighting over. 
That was good. That was a pretty good answer, John. Not too, not too bad. Mark Twain would be proud, I think. Yeah. Um, I want to ask a, kind of a final question here. We've spent the podcast uh, talking about quantity uh, and allocation, but I, I want to ask a quick question about quality. Uh, the quality of our tap water, specifically here in uh, Southern Nevada. I, I, I confess that I, I don't really know much about it. And people uh, who are visiting me here in Las Vegas often ask me, should I be drinking the tap water? What should I tell them? You, you tell them our water is absolutely safe. Uh, it is, in fact, s- some of the most tested water anywhere in the world. We literally take hundreds of thousands of samples uh, across our distribution system every year. I do understand the taste component. Our, our water has a certain hardness to it, and that's what you're experiencing in the taste. But in terms of safety, uh, we know a lot more about our tap water than most people do about the bottled water that they're drinking. And just to bring the point home, I have two children. They're 10 and 12 now, so they haven't had formula for a while. But when they were <laughs> newborn infants, when I made their baby formula, I used tap water to do it. So we're wasting our money spending $1 to $3 uh, per bottle of uh, water is what you're saying if we're doing that. Well, the average cost of our water across our tiered structure is $3 for 1,000 gallons. So if you're spending 2 or 3 bucks on half a liter, uh, you're not getting a very good bang for your buck. Okay, there you go, folks. Uh, you heard it from the man uh, himself. John, thank you so much for joining us today. This is a great and interesting and only a semi-wonky uh, conversation, <laughs> I think. We uh, we appreciate your time. Uh, and Daniel, thanks, uh, too, for um, for being here and kind of driving this conversation. And, uh, and I'm proud of the work uh, that Daniel's done. Uh, I encourage everybody to go to the Nevada Independent website, Um, We have a new land and water category that you can click on in the sidebar, uh, and there you will find all Daniel's stories on uh, water usage issues uh, on the Colorado River and across the state. That's all we have time for for this edition of the Indie Matters podcast. Uh, We always want to know what you think, so if you have ideas, criticism, or even praise, email us at ideas at theenvyindy.com. Please be sure to check out our entire website for great new stories every day. Uh, and if you're a regular listener and reader, uh, please consider supporting the Indie by becoming a member. As always, our content is free and our site is ad-free, but we rely on our faithful members to keep us going with a voluntary monthly contribution. You can be a member of the Indie for as little as $5 a month, so please visit the Support Our Work page at nvindie.com to learn more. I'd like to thank our wonderful recording host here at KUNV on the campus of UNLV, and as always, many thanks to Joey Lovato, our fantastic producer who makes us all sound podcast smooth. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. Thanks for listening to Indie Matters, and we'll talk to you next week.